Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Panicker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, uh, which is a novel about an 11-year-old detective who flies around on a jetpack, hunts giant robot bees with an EMP blast rifle with his cousin, Ellicott Skullworth. It's a great time, and you can get that book, Panicker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, as an audiobook, a paperback, and the ebook is free. Yes, free to download. Download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, once you're hooked on the series, I've got two sequels for you. I've also got some novels I've written for older readers under the name Robert Kent. You can get more information on all of that, not to mention hundreds, if not thousands, of interviews with middle grade authors, young adult authors, adult authors, all the best authors, literary agents, editors, publicists, all the best book people. You can get all of that at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, and by golly, that's more than enough intro. My guest uh, is Erica Lewis, who I am thrilled to talk about. In fact, we were exchanging emails earlier, and I'm going to go ahead and tease this up front. Uh, you told me, Erica, that you have endless ghost stories and that you believe E.T. was possibly a work of nonfiction, by yes. which I assume you meant that in the 80s, adults really did just let their kids ride bikes anywhere unsupervised, no, no problem. Yeah, we found aliens all the time. <laughs> so we will we will tease all of that here at the front. We will absolutely get to the many ghost stories that you, you have for us. Um, but first, we're going to talk books and writing and all, all the usual stuff we talk about on this show. Uh, so Stephen August knows that I never summarize anyone else's background or anyone else's book because that is just asking for trouble on both counts. <laughs> Um, so best place to start is if you would give a esteemed audience an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. Um, let's see, what can I tell you about myself? I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia um, and uh, spent a lot of time in Massachusetts in the summertime. Um, then went to university in Nashville, Tennessee. And then uh, after I graduated from Vanderbilt, I got a master's degree and some other degrees after that, but ended up working in television for 15 years, I guess, um, uh, for all the big studios, um, Sony, NBC Universal. Um, I finished up there having a lot, a lot, a lot of fun working um, at a network that was called G4, um, which is just now relaunching, uh, working on, uh, I, I basically ran the studio there, which was really fun. And then, I had been writing for many years. And so I finally got the courage to start showing some of my work. Um, and um, a lot of it still remained in the drawer and I brought out other things and reworked. And uh, eventually I was fortunate to get um, my first graphic novel sold um, called The 49th Key. And then I had a debut novel that came out from tour called Game of Shadows. And I've sort of been writing uh, ever since, um, which has been great. And um, yeah, so that's kind of who I am and what I've done. So I kind of work in both the novel space and the comic space. Um, and I recently had my debut YA came out called The Color of Dragons, which I actually co-authored with R.A. Salvatore, which was uh, amazing. Um, 
And, and now uh, my first middle grade is getting ready to come out and it's a series and I'm so excited for it. So there you have it. And that is Kelsey Murphy at the Academy for the Unbreakable Arts. Yes. Uh, which we're talking uh, March 5th, wink, wink, esteemed audience. March 1st. We'll go ahead time. Uh, but March 1st, uh, so the book is available now, esteemed audience. By God, go get your copy. <laughs> yes. That's the uh, middle grade that comes out. That story is, would you, would you like a little bit about the story? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, so this is a story about a, um, a girl uh, who's a foster kid in Boston. Um, Kelsey has very, uh, has had a very tough life. She's been moved around constantly. She has this crazy caseworker who's always been, you know, completely useless in her life. And she finds out why in the very first chapter, <laughs> um, because uh, all kinds of craziness breaks loose. And they, she, he, along with his accomplices, forced her to unleash a great evil upon, uh, upon the world. And when I say the world, I actually mean the other world because she discovers that she's actually not from here, she's from somewhere else. Um, so Kelsey goes on a journey uh, after them, basically trying to find out who her parents are, because she's never known who her parents are. She was abandoned uh, when she was too young in her mind to remember who they were. She was uh, five years old. Um, but when she gets through to this other place, she somehow ends up at this military magic school. She doesn't know what it is. All these kids are in fancy uniforms, all this craziness going on. And the story um, sort of keeps going from there. Uh, she ends up having to test for this school because uh, there's no invitations given. Uh, if you can't get past test, you can't get in. And, um, and then she finds out, um, uh, unlike in, uh, in a lot of the other stories that I've, I've read over the years, this story, uh, she ends up in literally the most hated <laughs> group of kids. Um, all of her, her Fianna, which is her team, um, are very flawed in their own ways. They're all overcoming obstacles, they're all overcoming different things. Um, and the, specifically the, the, the den that she's in um, is, is from a group of people who've been very, um, been very oppressed and it's, it's, a very, it's a very hard thing, but she overcomes a lot of these things and Kelsey's a tough kid. And she powers through, and uh, and and there you have it. So at the end of the day, it's about saving the other world from this great evil. It's about saving the school from the great evil. It's about saving her friends from the great evil, and they have to work together as a team um, and overcome a lot of these shortcomings that they feel like they have personally to be able to do that to save everyone. So who uh, is the ideal reader for the story? Um. I don't really know. I mean, I would, you know, they, they, the publishers call it eight and up. Um, I guess it depends upon your reading level as far as whether you like fantasy. I think anyone who's a fan of um, uh, Star Wars, Avatar, The Last Airbender, um, anyone who likes to read Percy Jackson kind of stuff. There's a lot of action, a lot of adventure. Um, it's a little darker, a little more uh, um, than those, but there's still a lot of humor in it. 
So I don't know any any of the kids who like me could rewatch Avatar: The Last Airbender five thousand times, or Star Wars Rebels, or Clone Wars, or all those kinds of things. I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of that kind of tone in it. So how excited are you for that new Netflix version of uh, Avatar? I'm very excited. I'm always skeptical of everything live action um, because there in the sense of trying to actually have elemental powers. Do you know what I mean? That's a big, bold. So I'm curious to see how it goes. You know what I mean? It's, well, it's I heard uh, M. Night Shyamalan nailed it. I haven't seen the movie, but I heard really? it. Really? <laughs> You're talking about the I movie? I, I did not okay. hear <laughs> I don't want to diss the movie because I feel bad. My kids liked the movie when they were little and I, I tried. I just, I feel like, you know, the nice thing is that the special effects have finally come around to a place where they have caught up. Um, it's just with Avatar in particular, you're talking about firebending and you're talking, you know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm curious to see how that all works out. So we'll see. Well, without spoiling there, if this were to be adapted live action, uh, Kelsey Murphy would, would need a considerable uh, special effects. Yes. It probably would need a big budget for special effects. If I and you, you've got the the studio, so you, you, I imagine you could greenlight this. But if I could say this is greenlit, it's happening for sure. Would you prefer that it be an animated series, or would you prefer it be live action? Um, I think that the book itself fits the world of of animation very well. Um, I can already see the animation playing out in my head a little easier, I guess. Better. Well, uh, we'll circle back uh, and talk a little bit more about your, your time there in, in Hollywood. But for now, I, wanted, I had some questions I wanted to make sure I asked you about the book. Um, one, I wanted to, uh, well, kind of a silly question, not non-spoilery. We encounter an Officer Grimes uh, early on who may or may not actually be a police officer. Who knows? Um, is that an allusion to the uh, Walking Dead? <laughs> Allusion to the what? I missed that last uh, one. To the Walking Dead? No, it actually was not. Um, I don't know why, but that character has always been a killer Grimes to me. Um, and she is in book two as well. She, <laughs> she's just, you know, she's a character. Um, and no, um, I actually don't have any. The only homage to anything on the names is that... Um, uh, Killian Murphy, the actor, um, I was watching Peaky Blinders and his last name is Murphy. And I was like, oh, that's probably a good name to use because it's, it's probably a really common name. So I literally, Kelsey's name started with Killian Murphy. <laughs> so, but yeah. Scarecrow himself. <laughs> yep. Um, well, that's fun. So now we know for sure it's one person who has to be cast somewhere. <laughs> the film or animated version. There we go. He gets a part for free. <laughs> do you, I mean, do you have like a, a dream cast in the back of your mind or do you, do you just see the characters as themselves? No. Yeah, I don't. Um, you know, I, and maybe, maybe it's just because I have worked in the business. I don't actually see like real life actors in in my head when I when I write the characters um 
sometimes I'll use different pictures for inspiration, but they're usually not of um, anybody that I, you know, that I would be aware of, like in something. Um, so no, I never really think about the cast. I mean, I think for me, one of the most um, interesting roles are Kelsey's parents, who obviously she finds out something about in the book, um, and who pop up potentially. And um, for me, you know, I have, I have an impression of what they would look like. Um, and they're probably the most um, ones that I have seen actors in my brain a little bit for. But with the kids and with the teachers now, they're also, I mean, Skyhawk, the teacher who is the, um, the principal of the school called the preceptor is actually um, a, a lot of the storyline comes right out of Irish mythology. And she's uh, an Irish mythological character who taught all the biggest heroes in Ireland how to fight with magical um, weapons and, and martial arts. And she had a school that I went to visit on the Isle of Skye, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. That's ruins now called the Fortress of Shadows. Uh, it's called Dunsky Castle. And so um, in my mind, sometimes I, I have impressions of these specific, um, like, legendary characters, legendary, you know, like, people have drawn her before because she's a fairly well-known uh, figure. But, yeah, not real-life people. I kept uh, imagining her as Aloy from the Horizon Zero Dawn because I'm, I'm, I'm counting down, as we record this, I'm counting down the hours to uh, Horizon Forbidden West. That's my big media release of the year. So yeah. it's already in my mind, well, yeah, she, she could be Irish. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and technically speaking, uh, the Isle of Sky is now part of Scotland. I don't know back then if it was all kind of like hodgepodge, but... Um, uh, but yeah, technically almost every, uh, everything in the story, except for maybe a few of the, um, the, the more, uh, monstrous characters that are from, uh, a couple of the Celtic European mythologies, most of it's all straight from Irish mythology. So. So you're there at the, um, the Isle of Skye and you see these runes. Uh, and you learn about the royal, about the warrior queen. So when does this story start to take root? Do you never want to ask where do your ideas come from? But it sounds like maybe there. <laughs> comes from traveling. I mean, I lived in, um, in the UK for a year during school and then was constantly going back. And we spend a lot of time there. I spent a lot of time specifically in Ireland. Um, but I had forced my poor kids to go... Um, on a, uh, one of those tour bus things, those small ones. And it was actually kind of funny because um, when we got on it, there was probably like, I don't know, 10 people. It's like one of those small little Mercedes things. They're not like a big bus, it's a small one. And it was on a tour of the Highlands all the way up to Sky with the intention of going to Dunsky Castle because I knew I wanted to go see it. My, um, I had just finished, had Game of Shadows come out and my editor was asking me about what I wanted to do next. And if I, finally wanted to do middle grade because that's my my where my heart is and I was like yeah and she's asking me for a proposal so I was like okay well I have an idea but I, I want to go see this place first and so they, they kept stopping and there were a lot of 
Outlander fans on the bus. And I love Outlander. Don't get me wrong. I love the books. I love the show. I love the actors. I mean, I love everything about Outlander. But we kept stopping at all these, like the Casalia, all the, the sites where they were shooting all over. And, you know, it's funny because when you come from L.A., it's like, I don't want to go to a set. I want to go. You know what I mean? It was like, I don't need to do that right now. But my poor kids, they were like, I think eight and I don't even know. They were so young at the time. They were like, really? We're stopping at another ruin and another castle and another location. And it's always Outlander, Outlander, Outlander. It was really funny. Um, but uh, but that was really fun. So when we got to the Isle of Skye, um, I was talking to them about the, the, the story of the school because she wouldn't train you unless you could cross her bridge of leaping, which is a part of the story uh, in the book and the bridge would throw you off. And so every time my daughter would like inch towards getting on the bridge, I'm like, get off, get off. <laughs> don't cross it, don't cross it. There's a big giant hole in it right now. So I don't even know if you'd, if it would hold up, but you never know. Um, so yeah, so my inspiration for this story started with that school, the idea of a, a military school run by this, you know, kick butt woman um, who is um, just such a legend. And, and then I wanted to, I wanted to tell a, a, a big story. I wanted to talk a little bit about our times and I, I, the kids um, were a, a sort of fit into the world. You know, I don't know which came first, um, but each one of the, the kids in her group um, has something about them that makes them sort of like the perfect fit for their their team together and um the fianas as, as they call it and 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 skyhack puts them together on knowing full well sort of how how each of these people are going to play together and so for me it was it was being able to draw upon some some a little bit more stories that we're talking about now too because it is a story about war it is a story about um and a, a never-ending war, you know, between these two places in the other world, um, and 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 whether they even know why they're still fighting. So when you when you go there, then you you've already had the conversation with your agent. You know, you need to be thinking of something for a middle grade novel. So that's yeah. already your your mind was, is fertile with that. I was very fortunate. My editor um, at tour at the time uh, was also working with tour teen and starscape and she knew with my voice even with game of shadows it's about a 14 year old kid um, I I like to write for for middle middle grade and she's she was great she was like yeah, I we'd love you know I, I would like to be able to buy something from you again would you consider writing me a story set in in Celtic mythology um, uh, for middle grade? And that was sort of my marching orders. And I was like, oh, I got something for you. Sure. So, but then, you know, it's a process. You're still writing a, a long proposal. And then um, uh, at least at least the first four or five chapters um, for them to review. Um, and you can't really do, you know, you sell your first book and then you, you get somebody who likes your writing. And then I think it's easier to do it that way. But I have to tell you, I'm writing on constant deadlines now, and I wouldn't mind going back to the other direction where you write the whole book first and then you sell it because it's, it's, it's nerve wracking being under those time constraints. So. 
Well, with the um, so okay, so you go out and you 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 do the travels, but then there is a fair amount of mythology uh, in, in the book. Okay. It's not a textbook; it's it's a story. But there's there's a fair amount of of, of background uh, that you provide with for the reader. So, how much research are you doing, and how are you going about doing it? I for that for for most of my stories, I do a lot of research if I'm going to base it in in something that's not completely fictionalized. Um, with this. With Irish mythology, I have spent uh, probably a decade um, researching because uh, Game of Shadows was also um, set in, in Irish mythology. And um, I worked with a professor at Trinity and went around, drove around to see everything I could and touch everything I could so that when I was sticking stuff in the story, um, you know, without spoilers, in book two, there's stuff about the Stone of Destiny, which is um, a, a stone called Failfall that's in um, the Hill of Tara right outside of Dublin. And in, in, the legend has it that when a, a new king or queen uh, was going to be coronated uh, or they needed one, you know, it was like a King Arthur thing. You got to you touch the stone and the stone would cry out for who whoever was the actual the actual chosen person um, to rule. And it's interesting because there's a Stone of Destiny on the Hill of Tara. There's one in Edinburgh Castle. Um, and um, there, it's still the stone that the uh, king or queen in, um, in England, in the UK, is actually coronated on. They still use it for coronations, which is crazy um so there's I went I went to go see all of that I went to go see and touch and um because I want to uh, you know for me it's 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 fun but it's also um it's a, a really interesting part of ancient mythologies that hasn't been explored as much as like Greek mythology and Roman mythology and um I, th I think it's it's fun to give everybody a really you know a real look at those kinds of things for the kids so that, you know, it's kind of like that movie, Indiana Jones, when I was little and I first saw the first Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, I remember the opening scene where they, um, oh, you know, Harrison Ford's character, Indiana Jones opens the Bible and he blows the dust off, right, everywhere. And there's this picture of uh, the the Ark of the Covenant and, and uh, the Hebrews all sort of bending down that they put inside the and I was like, wow, I got to go look that up when I get home and see what that is. You know, so it was sort of like, okay, you know, as a kid, you 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 pick up little things and then you want to go and you want to research them more. And it just sort of opens your eyes to studying history. And um, so, yeah, so for me, I, I like to research a lot. Um, and then I like to throw it all into the crazy pot and just do something strange with all of it, you know, so... Something um, that, um, that that did you touch on in the book, and that you've you've spoken about elsewhere, um, is that uh, Irish um, uh, the Irish mythology, the women play a very important role uh, as well. In fact, what the the Brehan laws are, are the foundation of their legal yeah. system that makes them a little bit more equal. How yeah. so? Well, Brehan laws were. Um, and I'm not an expert in this, in those specifically, but uh, those laws were on the books long before um, I would say Christianity came into Ireland. This, the idea was that 
um, women and men were equal in in everything uh, in marriage. Um, in fact, they actually had a funny uh, kids. It's probably won't be as much fun for kids to be interested in, but it's kind of funny <clears throat> when you got married uh, a, a a year later on the day you were married. You could turn to your spouse and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and you're done. And that's the end of the marriage. Uh, after you get you get a trial period for a year. And they had all kinds of like, you know, laws about separating things. And um, you know, it was uh it was just a um it was a, a matriarchal society in that kind of way. The uh the the children of of Danu, Danu was was their their chief goddess, I guess you would call it their Zeus, so to speak. Um, although their, um, their gods and goddesses were a little bit, uh, different than, you know, they, they were less related to, you know, lightning and that kind of thing and more related to, um, harvests and nature things, <coughs> excuse me. But, um, but, uh, it was, yeah, it was very matriarchal. And it's just the way it's different. You say that three three times, uh, like like we're summoning Beetlejuice, I divorce you, and then that's the end of the marriage. That sounds that the end sounds of your marriage. One year and uh, maybe it's a year and a day. I think it's a year and a day after you get married. You you get your make your decision, and if there are kids in the marriage, there's all kinds of. It was all written down on how you're supposed to divide and conquer. Yep. Just thinking, like, you know, long bad weekend that that <laughs> might slip out. Like, oh, you you have a week to think about it. You calm down. Oh, you never mind. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Somewhere is a happy compromise between way too easy and, and way too difficult. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what that is, but that sounds a little close to the too easy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Although they were getting married a lot younger, <laughs> so. Oh, well, <laughs> sure. <laughs> What, what age are we talking? I don't know. I mean, I have to imagine, you know, I, I did a lot of um, studying about this great woman who was the pirate queen there. I don't know if you know Grace O'Malley. Do you know who Grace O'Malley is? I've heard the name. Okay. So Grace O'Malley was was uh, in charge of her clan. Um, but when she was, um, I think she was married off, I want to say when she was 16, 15 or 16 to her first husband. Um, but uh, her father was um, uh, a, a pirate and a clan leader. And um, when she was like, I don't know how old she was, but when she was little, she wanted to go with her dad on the ship. And uh, her mother said, no, your hair will get caught in the sails or whatever. So she went upstairs and she cut all her hair off and she came back down. She's like, okay, I'm ready to go. And um, that sort of started her her pirating days and and she was this was during she grew up in the same time period as as Queen Elizabeth and they were both uh in in power uh, so to speak at the same time and there was actually a famous meeting between the two of them when um uh her I think it was her son and her son-in-law were arrested by the British um, which was happening a lot to the Irish then. So she sh sailed her, her armada over to uh, Dover um, and blockaded the ships in. Uh, and she was a pretty um, incredible pirate, so to speak, but they call her the Pirate Queen and um, she's, she's a fascinating character.
Well, yeah, no, if you're going to be married off at 15, 16, I think a, a three word or a three, three sentence divorce, yeah. that's, that, that, that's more that's than that. Well. And I don't think she had a divorce. Like, I think he ended up getting, he got killed. I can't remember all of the stories. She had three oh, that's <laughs> She had three husbands, but look it up. She was really cool. She was, she's a really cool, really cool um, character. Yeah, that sounds like the kind of thing where you just hop on a boat and sail away, and as as you're going over the coast, just yell, "I divorce you! I divorce you! I divorce you!" Goodbye. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about your partnership with R.A. Salvatore. Uh, so that's that's your your debut young adult novel, yeah. Uh, that was a, my debut YA, yeah. So how do you get partnered up with a with a giant like that right out of right first at bat? Well, I was very fortunate. Um, it goes back to my TV days. I was um, uh, working at a production company called Fireworks. And um, we had decided we were going to uh, option the Forgotten Realms. And for listeners who don't know what that is, it's the world where Dungeons and Dragons is played. There's been a gazillion novels written by it. And Bob is... Um, uh, with the Dritz character and his, and, you know, back starting with Homeland is just a legendary um, author uh, in that world. And, and obviously Demon Wars, and he's got a bunch of many, many more books now. Um, but back then uh, we, I was, I was just coming up the ladder. I was a manager and I was like, we have to get Forgotten Realms. Um, and somehow we managed to negotiate a license for it. And so as we were developing, what I wanted to do is a TV series, which, it's a long story. This is the world of de development and television is so hard. Um, but uh, I went to Gen Con with Hasbro and met a lot of the authors. And because uh, I knew I wanted to work with one who um, to develop the show so that we we isolated a little part of the realms that hadn't been worked on yet. And it was going to be like this whole thing. Um, and I loved Bob's writing so much I was like I really want to work with him so we worked with him on that project and then afterwards uh I we just kept in touch and um over the years and with his wife Diane we just sort of knew each other um and Bob was um uh would would read some of my early drafts of stuff and tell me whether it was terrible or not he was very much a mentor for me and um then he was approached by uh Temple Hill which is a production company out here um, to write a YA novel, um, and he had never really worked in the younger space, uh, even though some of the books have younger folks in them, he had never worked in that, and so he was like, well, I can, can I get somebody who's going to do it with me, um, so that's how he and I ended up partnering up on The Color of Dragons. It's a, it's a, uh, deal of partnership with Temple Hill that they then took to, to HarperCollins, and sold. So that's how I ended up writing that book with him. Well, I, you know what? The Lord of the Rings TV show looks, it looks fine. I hope it's, I hope it's great. Uh, but where is my Dark Elf trilogy movie? I, I know. I, I think Bob would say the same thing. Um, I don't know. I'm not allowed to talk about things that I have heard some rumors, but well, you know, it's always, it's always the rumors and then they never happen. And so, um, yeah, I, 
Hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Cause that would be, I, 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 again, I I'm agreeing with you. It was funny because the Lord of the Rings movies had just come out. And that's why I was like, oh, we have to go make this now. Um, back then. Um, but yeah, it didn't. It's a long story, but we didn't end up making the show. I think and then a long television series would work just fantastic for that series. Mm -hmm. uh, it would have been. And especially now, I, th I actually think a lot of these, um, Novel-based uh, series are are better off in 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 limited series or in television series, whatever we want to call them these days, streaming series. Um, I think movies, making a trying to squeeze all that stuff in a two-hour movie is is really kind of hard. It's genre yeah. just goes on forever. You, yeah. you, <laughs> you can, exactly. You can have multiple. It could be the next Doctor Who. You could have all sorts. <laughs> it could go on forever. <laughs> exactly. How does this get started? That does he offer like, hey, are you writing something? Can I read your work? How do you get critiqued from R.A. Salvatore? Oh, you mean well, we wrote that together. We sat down. Um, his he's has a home out here. He's usually back east in Massachusetts, but he also has a home out here. Um, and so when he was out here, we sat down. We had, they gave us a, a, a treatment that they sort of wanted us to work with a little bit. And then we sort of rewrote that and um, put our own stamp on it. And I would write something and he would edit it up and vice versa. And, and then when it came to writing the book, um, we uh, would take chunk, we, we were both on deadline. <clears throat> I was working on Kelsey Murphy and he was working on a lot of the new Dritz novels. And it was, um, it was a little bit hard because we sort of had this big window open and then it all got, the deals took so long and everything takes so long. We finally started on it. And I mean, I would have liked to have at least another six months to work on that book, especially the back half of the book because um, um, the ending comes up pretty quickly. And, but, you know, in hindsight, what can you do? Uh, it was a publishing date. This is deadlines. This is what we were talking about with deadlines. And I had, we had to turn it in and get it done. But um, we would go back and forth. So I would write some, send it to him, and then he would, we go back, the, the, the chapters go back and forth between uh, a girl named Maggie and a guy named Griffin. And, um, you know, they're, it, 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 I'd like to say that I wrote Maggie and he wrote Griffin, but we both kind of wrote all of it. <laughs> so. Gotcha, yeah. so. But he's critiquing you, you're critiquing him, yeah. both of you are doing the rewriting? Well, I don't usually critique him, to be perfectly honest. Fair enough. I mean, in the sense that I read his work and I'll be like, okay, for kids or young adults, in this, in this case it was 13 and up, um, although this book does skew a little younger, because um, it's, it's uh, um, you know, the whole King Arthur feel of it, it makes it feel very young. Um, but you know, his, uh, he, he picked up pretty quick, you know, he, he, he's, he, he's, you know, he's extremely talented, and uh, I, I, I wasn't about, uh, most of the notes that, that on both ends that we were giving each other were story-driven notes, as opposed to critiquing a word on a page um, kind of thing. If that makes sense. 
So things like, I want the story to go this way, and if you do that, it can't go this way, or this is just yeah. a little... Yeah, like I threw in some seriously dark elements in the first draft, and he was like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> and, and, he, and I was like, okay, 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 we don't have to do this. We don't have to do this. We don't have to do this. And so he sort of dialed that back a little bit, and then um, built up the magic of the world, because, um, you know, there's so many worlds magical worlds now and and finding a way to do something that feels slightly original is not not necessarily the easiest task so for me I really wanted her to to feel a little bit you know um authentically connected to the moon and in all forms and so because her power comes from the moon and um you know it it to to so so we were building a lot of that stuff together and he would be, he would do a great job of like, you know, poking holes in that and how, why is this happening and that not happening? And, and with Griffin as a character, he's sort of the champion on, on the decline, falling out of favor with the king, so to speak, and um, who's got evil and robbing the hinterlands of all of their, their food and calling it taxes in order to, to, to feed his walled city. Um, uh, is the premise. Yeah, you can tell I wrote it during those crazy political years. <laughs> so funny. Um, but uh, it was um, um, it, it was more about Griffin and and the fighting styles and um, in the ring in the arena and uh, and and then just sort of making sure that there were enough surprises along the way that people didn't guess the story as we get towards the end he's just you know he's a, he's a story genius so you know if he I, I would not be a good partner for him because if, if i just and i saw that most of his sentences didn't have punctuation i would just assume you know what we're not doing punctuation this book <laughs> <laughs> And I'm wrong. I'm sure he has his reasons. You know, the, the, the one thing that Bob would never do is not put punctuation in if he wasn't doing it on purpose. Like his, his, uh, he was so good about finding every typo and fixing every, you know, grammatically speaking, it was uh, way better than I am because I'm slightly, uh, I have a little bit of a reading disability. So for me, a lot of times I switch words and switch letters and words when I'm typing. So I have to go back through things five or six times before I can even pass them on to somebody else without feeling like I've, you know, embarrassed myself. But he would catch things and, and I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm sorry about that, <laughs> you know. But he, cause he, he was so good about catching everything. He could have been a copy editor. And by the way, I, I meant to ask with uh, Kelsey, do, it's a part of a series. Do we know any idea how many books we're going to be looking at and when we might expect to see the second? Um, yeah, I'm, uh, the second one is supposed to come out. Um, they're supposed to come out one a year. So I'm hoping it will be March of 23. Um, you know, so far, so good. I should knock on something. We'll see. Uh, but there's three books that they've picked up. Um, I'm, uh, I, right now it's, uh, it, in my head, it's four total books. Um, it may be three. It just depends. Um, it's a, it's a pretty big, um, arc to get from, uh, book one to the very end of the story 
in one book in the middle. So, uh, but I'm, I've written book two, I'm editing it now. Um, and I, there's, there's most definitely at least going to be three. Um, and I'm hoping there'll probably be four. <laughs> yeah. Well, if book three is just mega sized and <laughs> it might just be, it might be Deathly Hollow size. You know? <laughs> we'll know that that's, that's how they're working that. There you go. Uh, does it, uh, when you're working on your, your sequel, now that you've done your, at least your preliminary world building, uh, and you know, you know the characters, is that any easier or are there all new challenges? And if so, what? Yeah, well, in book two, um, unlike in book one, the we talk and we hear a lot about the lands of summer and the lands of winter, but in book two, it was massive world building because we leave the school um on a mission and uh we we see a lot of the lands of summer we see we are going to go into the lands of winter they go back into the human world a little bit um it was uh it's a it's a it was a lot of world building um which is hard because you know you built the whole school and then you think oh i'm i'm done but um, no, I I did this to myself. It's a big other world, and um, and it's it's all leading to something, and it's really important. So in book two, where there's um, the academy for the unbreakable arts at uh, on the lands of summer, we meet some new characters too who are from winter, who go to a rival school. Um, so there's you know the the lands of summer gets into huge jeopardy and um our favorite Fiona has to go and and save the day uh but along the way we literally introduce all of these characters from the other world so we we meet a lot of people and when we start the story in book two we start it actually with um some of uh you learn in the book that that the the clan that Kelsey come from the Fomorian clan um, uh, there was a lot of backlash to an event that happens, which I don't want to talk too much about because I don't want to do any spoilers, but the Fomorians have all been taken from their homes, um, uh, right about the time that Kelsey was abandoned, actually, in the human world, and, um, moved into a place called Chalwell Woods, which is a, the most dangerous place in all of the lands of summer, but they've moved, been moved there, um, you know, sort of, you know, call it like the Japanese internment camp here. Um, I don't really want to connect it to the Holocaust, but it's a similar kind of thing where these people, they were being moved because they're paying the price for some, but something somebody bad did in their, in their clan. And um, Kelsey is a part of that clan as well. She's, she finds out she is a uh, Fomorian. And so for her, she, you know, so a lot of book two becomes about, figuring out who she is and how she's a part of that world and, you know, going there in the, at the beginning of it before she goes back to school. And so we get to see a lot of that. So there was a massive amount of world building and really important issues I felt, you know, to tackle in a fantasy world so that, you know, it gives kids the ability to sort of read these things and think about the world around them a little bit. Um, and these things that, that, that happen in our real world that are sort of very similar in that way. Um, and about how, uh, about how she's going to go about, 
um, helping the other den, her den mates who are in book one, you know, make real change for her own people. So this just becomes a bigger story. It's uh, tricky when when it, when it comes to the Holocaust. Obviously, we the Holocaust is the Holocaust. You don't want right. to be comparing things. You know, wearing a mask is not the Holocaust or, <laughs> or any of these other trite comparisons. That come. <laughs> but no. when you're writing a fantastic novel, and and um, obviously, although we're talking about fantasy, we're talking about fun, we're also talking about um, humanity and, and trying to make sense of the yeah. human condition. And so there is, I think, a question mark in most of our heads, whether it's the Holocaust, whether it's some other genocide uh, or, or ethnic cleansing, where you're going to see shades of real life events without, without reflecting those exactly or without saying, hey, this is as serious as that. Obviously, it's not. Um, but no. it sense that you would want to explore that, that you would want to, um, what's the word? I'm, I'm struggling to find the to um, to express that to to ask those questions of why why do these terrible things keep happening amongst yeah. humanity? But through a fantasy lens, where we don't have to look at anything directly specific, kind of indirectly looking at this terrible thing. Is that right? Yeah. Well, fantasy has always been a, a good place for that. I mean, you know, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 is about book burning. Let's there it is. You know what I mean? It's the fantasy world of that. And so, you know, for me in this particular, I, I come from a Jewish family. My, um, I would not compare what the Fomorians go through in this. It, it is much more like the Japanese internment camps that we had here in, in, in the U.S. Um, but I feel like a lot of people are talking about the Holocaust right now. And I, I do think that it's a, it's a really important time to, um, to, to be open to having those conversations because kids learn a lot through books and through things that they're watching in TV. They, they, and, and adults too, um, you know, in terms of what they're, but, but with, you know, in this particular situation, it's, it's, it's about, um, it's about compassion. It's about learning um, to have courage of conviction, which is what these kids have to have. Um, and her whole, uh, Fiona being a part of it, especially when we discover who Niles is, Niall is at the end of the book, which I'm not going to give away. Um, there's a lot of um, a lot of reason why um, we can show kids making a real change, a real difference, and 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 have them stand up for the bully who's doing wrong, and have them step in front of the person who's harassing someone in class, and and be a part of, 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 of compassion and building a world that um, doesn't see the uh, see each other others fault flaws. I can't speak today. Flaws all the time. You know, we look at each other and we see flaws instead of just meeting the person and 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 meeting the person. You instantly come at it with a first impression. And Kelsey does that in her own group of, of, of friends that she meets when she first gets there. I mean, other than Niall, the initially, you know, like she and Brona, wow, she sees Brona a particular way. And by the time you get to, and so do we, um, a very classic uh, sort of know-it-all perfect girl. And by the time you get to the end of the story, it's, it's her, her situation is very different. It's not what anybody thought it was. And same for Niall. Um, Zephyr has, has the perfect family, not perfect, 
<laughs> they weren't happy with him going to the academy. They want him to sleep in the barn. But uh, he's he's he has a more supportive and has more supportive family. But it it's interesting because you you know the first time Kelsey meets Brona, she's perfect. You know everything about her. She can fight perfectly, and she's a goddess's daughter, and everybody loves her and wants to be her friend, and she's real popular. And and unlike a lot of uh, stories out there right now, at least that I can think of. Uh, Kelsey's not popular and never has been. Um, she comes at things from a little bit of a, uh, um, she's, she's got trust issues. She doesn't really want to expose too much about herself to anyone. Um, and, and, but by the end of it, she's, she becomes a, a little different person. And, and as we get into book two and she's got to meet more people and, and it, it, she, she, it's, it's, uh, it, 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 it's a, for me a great way to talk to kids about the fact that they can change the world if they, if they put their mind to it, if they have their courage of conviction and they, they, they see the world, um, you know, make the world a better place. And, you know, I mean, have hopeful messages, I guess is the way to say it in a, at a time when things are really hard right now. So. Oh, fair enough. Um, wanted to ask a little bit about world building. There is a glossary uh, in the back of, of Kelsey Murphy, which mm -hmm. I, I love uh, because it's it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice reference for things that aren't aren't real, but could be, but should yeah. be. Maybe. Uh, is that a glossary? Did that grow out of uh, your notes and your world building? Or how do you go about keeping track of, of your world, especially for something where you're going to have uh, at least three, potentially four books? Um, I, well, I have a wonderful editor who helps me too. Um, in, in this particular situation, I crafted the glossary um, with the, the stuff that was taken out of mythology. Um, and then I broke it out separately so that the, the stuff that I invented too, because I, I, you know, it's always hard to remember all the words. And when I look in the back of a lot of glossaries, they seem kind of like, eh, I mean, they're all just, you know, ripped out of the, 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 the real mythology. And, and I wanted to make it kind of fun and, and add in these things that I invented. So like the language of Fomorian and, um, you know, different things that were, uh, iconic things that would continue to be a part of the the world as the books continue like the sidrels which are the trees that they travel in as transport trees um and the silver bow which is actually a part of uh irish mythology that you know the fairies had to they, they gave you a silver bow otherwise you couldn't get into the other world um but those will continue to be a part of 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 the story and into the lands of winter. So anything that I felt like was um, a, a, a iconic thing in in the story that would relate. So I'm just going to keep adding to it, you know, as we, you know, because it's kind of fun. But but yeah, I, I did that. I want. I mean, they asked me for a glossary, but I wanted to do a glossary that was more than just about the Irish mythology in it. You know, I wanted to to sort of be have everything in it so eventually somebody could learn to to count in in Fomorian <laughs> you know <laughs> so 
that uh, make you a bit nervous? And maybe maybe it doesn't, but it will after I ask this question. <laughs> but um, does it make you a little bit nervous having now that now that book one is published and you've written book two, but you've got one to two more books still to go? Do you worry that you've set something in stone in terms of the in terms of the world, in terms of the mythology already published, and now you can't change it and you might have liked to have changed it come book three or whatever? Um no, I mean I've thought through a lot of the pieces of the puzzle. Um, like as a good example, um one of the things that um comes up in book two, which you can kind of think about is that, you know, Kelsey didn't have a last name when she got to the human world. She was Kelsey, she only remembered her name was Kelsey. And so somebody else gave her a last name. Um, her, uh, her caseworker does what she explains, um, but there's a reason for that, which you'll discover in book two, it has more to do with Fomorians and, um, when you discover who her parents are, neither of them have last names either. Um, so it's it's sort of a um, there. Are, those kinds of things have all been laid in on purpose. Um, and anything else, I feel like I can always write my way out of if I get my. You know what I mean? I don't know if I have it all completely ironed out exactly like some uh, some other authors, um, but I I have the the you know I I wrote the outlines. I do my best to to do outlines and then halfway through I throw them out. And in fact, with book two, I started it in one place and half of everything I wrote in the first draft got moved to book three. And I had to redo the whole thing. Not redo, but add the whole thing because it was moving too fast and the story needed to slow down. And so I, um, the storyline is exactly the same. It's just the place the story begins is different. Um, the first probably 70 pages. And, um, and as the world, as the war escalates, um, which it does throughout each of the books, um, you know, that's something I hadn't quite anticipated the flow of when I, when I started, how, how quickly are these things going to come on? Because sometimes I tend to write things at a, at a net breakneck pace, the action, just keep it moving, keep it moving, keep it moving. Um, but there are times too, and um, especially in this storyline, a little bit in book two, where especially in the beginning, we need to have action, but but also um, world building that paces in at a comfortable level and not too fast. So, do you have a rule of thumb to know when you're hitting the right pace for that? Um. No, I mean, I'm sure an author would say, oh, you know, action on every other page or action, you know, especially in middle grade. Um, but for me, um, I do like if I can every chapter because chapters in middle grade, they try to keep them really short so that they don't get, you know, because, you know, a lot of times kids are reading a chapter at a time and, and you know, they only have so much time to read. So like, you know, 10 pages or less is typical with what, what we try to do, not do like a long 20 page chapter um, in middle grade. And so in that 10 pages, I always like to have a big revelation um, or an action sequence. So I try very, you know, in every scene, it, otherwise, you know, there's no, there's no massively talking scenes without it being um, 
tense on the page, I guess is the way to phrase it, you know, because as, as this, to, in order to, you know, even with me, you know, I, I, I tend to be someone who likes to get dragged into a story and just wrench all the way till I get to the end, you know? Um, uh, so I, it's probably why I, I write the same way. So that's, that's pretty much it. There's not a whole lot of scenes where we're, you know, um, sitting around in Chawa Woods and she's, you know, cooking with her grandmother. <laughs> so she's more uh, or less being attacked by vampires, but whatever. <laughs> I was going to say, if the, there was that scene, I'd be waiting for the fairies to show up. Oh, no. no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of darkness. And, you know, you know, it's interesting because in Irish mythology, there's also um, like um, they had a they they believe well i don't know if this is all true but this is what the irish would say they had the first vampire in their mythology a guy who they believed was a vampire um and uh they had headless horsemen they had a lot of really interesting um characters that are so much fun to play with you know um you know especially in 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 the kids crazy world of things um but yeah, I don't. I don't think I'd want to have to live in Chalo Woods. That's all I have to say. <laughs> well, having uh, worked in, in so many mediums, I'm curious: how does your process differ uh, when you're working on a middle grade novel versus a young adult novel that's a collaboration versus a graphic novel versus writing for television? Yeah, you know, um, for me, um, when it comes to the comic side of things it's still a collaboration because uh, I wouldn't have a book without an artist I'm not an artist um, and those things have to be done you have to have a, a good um, uh, working relationship but more so than that almost like think alike a little bit when it comes to when you're writing a comic or graphic novel and and connecting with an artist on on, because they're going to bring your world to life. Um, and so it's still very collaborative. Um, and I've done a lot of that. So working and writing with other people, I wrote um, Firebrand for Legendary with Jessica Chobot. And so like, I, I've worked with other people on the writing side as well on both those. But when you're writing a comic or a graphic novel, it's very, uh, especially when you're working with an artist, you write a chunk chapter, for example, and then you don't get to go back and revise, 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 revise. The artist is drawing and the artist is drawing. And then it's like television. It's very similar because you, you write a script and they shoot those pages. You don't get to go back and change those pages, right? It's, it's, it's in the can, as they used to say in the olden days. It's, 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 in the, it, it's been shot, so you can't go back and change it. And um, with with novels, uh, the process, um, I think we would all, I think every, a lot of authors would say they'd tweak forever. I mean, I would tweak forever if I could. Um, it's just, you know, you always go back through something and be like, oh, I could have done that better. Um, so it's a little bit of a different process. I try to be very outline heavy the way I, I am with my comic side of things and scripts for sure, but it's really important um, to also allow yourself to have the creative freedom to go back 
and say, okay, those first 70 pages weren't the right place to start the story. I'm going to do it a little differently and be able to be able to change all that without being like, oh, I already sent those pages. You know, so I had, there's a little more freedom in prose in that way. Um, and a lot more freedom when you're writing on your own. Um, and, and yeah, but, um, but yeah, so every process is different. Every, every process is different. I'm working on a graphic novel now that hasn't been announced. It's also in the middle grade space. Um, and I'm so excited about it. And we're just, we're just starting the process. Um, the artist is amazing. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's, it's more of, you know, it's a production of the book. You got to really, you got to keep the train going because we're all on board now and it's, it's got to get to its deadline. So. Gotcha. So you tweak forever, but sooner or later a deadline comes up and oh, I guess I'm done. Tweaking. Yeah, I guess I'm done. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. Wake up in the middle of the night. It's like, oh, wait, I got to go fix that. Yeah. Well, esteemed audience has has waited patiently, and I made a promise, and I try never oh. never to break a promise to esteemed audience. So okay. we reach a point where let's hear some of these many ghost stories that these experiences you've had. Forgive me, my dog is barking. Um, uh, many ghost stories. So I grew up in, in near Fort Ward, which is um, a Civil War spot, uh, stomping grounds for the Union Army in um, Northern Virginia. And um, it was uh, it was a very haunted place. Uh, there were graveyards everywhere for people who, you know, just all over Fort Ward, Episcopal, the, uh, the grounds there, they're all sort of connected. There's a big seminary there. And I used to wander through all the time. And, but the weirdest part for me was at our house, my mother put this addition on the the like there was a garage over top of the garage, but she never finished it. So it was always kind of creepy anyway. But every she would stick all the Christmas presents in that space. And um she didn't wrap them. She used to make me wrap them, which is another whole trauma as a child because then I knew what everybody was getting I knew what I was getting I was forced to wrap all the presents but I'd have to go into this little it wasn't even a closet space it was like this it was like attic space above the garage so I'd go in there and without a doubt every time I turn the light on and the light would turn off I thought it was a bad switch you know I turn the light on and then it would start flickering on and off not just turn off um and it was always 10 degrees colder and so this kept happening every time I'd have to go in there and it started when I was like I don't know eight years old and by the time I was I don't know 12 I literally started seeing outlines of figures of Civil War soldiers still in their uniforms like passing through the door and I guess I was it's got to be my imagination this can't be real this can't be real 100% it can't be real um but but as I got older, I'd have these same weird experiences. Like when I moved into the house that I live in now, um, there was an old 1970s doorbell, those long bars that would bong, you know, when somebody would ring the doorbell because the house hadn't been updated at all. And I was in my 20s and um, I had a little dog. She was part chow, part just like a mutt. 
And she would start barking at things at different places. And when I'd walk into that area, it would get frigidly cold. And I never, never heard the person except for the fact that in the middle of the night, the doorbells would start bonging together and I would get up and I'd go out there and I was like, could you please just let me sleep? It was the weirdest thing. And this went on and on and on for years. And what I found, come to find out was that the day that we closed on the house, the woman who owned the house died. And I think she came back <laughs> to the house. And so I was like, okay, what do I do? She's here. So I, you know, burned some sage, started talking to her and I had a nice conversation with her asking her, I was like, dude, it's like, please, I, I, I need to get some sleep. You're waking me up with the doorbell. And for a while it stopped, but then we had kids and my son, when he was three years old, I think it was around two or three, um, he, the, the first time he woke up in the middle of the night and I was walking by his door and I figured he was, you know, need to go to the bathroom or I need to come in and change him. He was, I think he was two. And I look in the door and he's literally full on having a conversation with somebody. And I'm like, Jack, who are you talking to? And he's like, to the lady. And I was like, Jack, you need to go back to sleep. He's like, well, she keeps talking to me. <laughs> I can't go back to sleep. And I was like, Oh no, she's still here. So these are just some of my ghost stories that uh, that I have had over the years. So I, I am a firm believer in ghosts. Um, I don't know if she's still here. I'm sorry if you are still here, you know, but she's she's welcome to stay. Just don't ring those doorbells anymore. But yeah, so. Hope the cells are quiet. The lights aren't flickering. She must be relatively at least calm about this this particular moment yeah or our kids are just you know teenagers now and she doesn't have to <laughs> deal with them <laughs> that's how you get rid of ghosts get teenagers in your house exactly exactly yeah i'm assuming that you're, you're saving some other juicy ghost stories for your your next book and we'll we'll all be reading about them yeah there you go Having had those paranormal experiences, does that calm you down about the question of life after death or worrying about what might happen beyond this world? Ooh, interesting question. Um, I think I've always been a very spiritual person just in general. Um, I think um, for me personally, I think the greatest comfort I had, okay, I'll tell one more ghost story, the greatest comfort I had about something like this was that um, my grandmother was very ill when I moved out here um, and we were really close we were super close and she um, she was really sick like to the point where uh, I hadn't talked to her in like a month um, and I'd call and check up on her but they were like yeah we don't know how much longer she's gonna have but you know um, we'll let you know kind of thing. And you can, I, I went back and it did the sort of a sort of goodbye thing, but she, she had cancer really bad. Um, so I came back and it was like, I don't know what time it was in the morning, somewhere between probably five and six in the morning. And I was, you know, that sort of place between sleep and awake where you don't really know if you're awake, but you kind of feel awake, but then you're not. Um, I, my grandmother came and said, I'm leaving now. And I was like, where are you going? And she's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I, she's like, I'm very proud of you. And she said some really nice things. And 
And, um, you know, I, she was like, but I, I have to go now. And then I said to her, I said, is, is grandpa here? Cause my grandfather died when I was really young. I was probably like eight years old. And then at this point I was, you know, in my late twenties. Um, I said, is grandpa here? And she's like, yeah, he's the one right there. Can you see him? The one with the sexy legs. And I was like, oh my God, what are you talking about? You know, this whole, like, I heard my grandmother talk like that. I was like, okay, so then, you know, I think it's a dream. It's all, but it felt so real. And I went to the office, went to work and I'm sitting there and I'm there for maybe 10 minutes when my mother calls and she's like, I just wanted to let you know that your, your grandmother passed away this morning. And I was like, cause there's a three hour time zone difference. And I was like, what time exactly? And really, it, that's so weird. And then I was home at the funeral and I said to my Aunt Diana, I was telling her this story and she's like, and I said, and then she said the weirdest thing. She said, she's like, grandpa was there. And she's like, she says like, the, the, standing right there, the one with the sexy legs. And I was like, so weird. She's like, that's what she used to always say about daddy. <laughs> my aunt's like going, she used to always say it. <laughs> so I was like, okay um well there you go uh you know I guess he was waiting for her when she got there beautiful story but um for me I I've never questioned the idea of something beyond I think um although I'm not necessarily an extremely religious person in any way shape or form um I like sort of experiencing all of it but I definitely feel like you know um that yeah that there's definitely there's a there's a thereafter you know, for me. Well, for I'll, I'll find out soon enough on a, on a long enough timeline. Oh, uh, not that. I don't want to know too soon. <laughs> <laughs> many, many, many novels from now. I'm not done. I got stories to tell. I got stories to tell. I've got at least three more bannockers before I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, see? see? <laughs> exactly. I, and then uh, you you had said that E.T. is practically a documentary. So have you also had experiences with, with aliens and or aliens? I haven't had experiences, but I firmly believe that we have been visited. I mean, all right, setting aside the footage alone that the Navy released recently, I think it was the Navy, of all the weird sightings that, that their pilots have had over the years. Um, I I definitely think that that, you know, I was a huge fan of Carl Sagan and the book Contact and the movie Contact and, and the idea that there's so many billions and billions of planets out there and for it not to, to have other, other creatures on it, populations, worlds, um, it would be a really big waste of space. Um, it would be surprising. Um, I, I, I am a little worried that, that, you know, they would not necessarily come in peace, <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> um, I feel like, you know, anybody who'd be visiting our world, yeah, let's, let's hope it's just not Independence Day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 I firmly believe in that, um, I, I honestly don't know that it's a question more than just a, a, in a lot of people's minds these days, especially after the footage was finally released. But I also feel like um, that, that it would be 
surprising to me that there wouldn't have been visitors at some point. And if they can all look like E.T., that would be awesome. Or at least be as nice as he was. Yes. <laughs> and make plants grow. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Fair enough. I think, uh, I don't know if it's uh, maybe the Independence Day type aliens are coming. I think it's probably a little bit more National Geographic. Maybe not quite that benign. Uh, yeah. For all I know, they've had a, a guiding hand in our evolution. Don't Don't know anything, just things that maybe make a little bit of sense to me based on what what folks have said yeah uh, but i think they're definitely at the very least there are drones every so often flying through the airspace they may not be piloted but they're checking us out There's and something it might not be interesting enough to warrant an actual trip down here like oh yeah look those there those humans are if they don't blow themselves up you know, <laughs> a few thousand years from now that might be a place worth visiting <laughs> yeah yeah you know it's interesting because um when when I was doing a lot of the research, um, you know, people talk a lot about the Egyptian pyramids and the possibility of aliens having a hand in building something like that, architecturally speaking. And in Ireland, Newgrange, the um, the I don't know if you've ever seen that the the solstice dome that um, it's made entirely of quartz. Uh, you probably it's it's their big um, mound, um, and it predates the Egyptian pyramids. And it is completely, um, it's a, it's a, it's got burial chambers, but it also lines up with the winter solstice, I believe. It's the winter solstice every um, year. And one of the things that I found amazing is that if you go into a lot of the, the smaller cairns, the smaller mounds that they have all around those areas that were built like 10,000 years ago, on the ceiling, and I have pictures of it, are, um, yes, there's a lot of these, um, the bottoms of a ship, like with oars sticking out that have been carved, but there's also these weird spirals that almost look like our spiral galaxy, and they're all over, and there's stars, and, you know, one of the, the uh, professors I was talking to said, you know, some people actually believe that, that the Tuatadan and the, um, the gods and goddesses that came down to Ireland um, actually came down from the stars, came down from another planet. And it's kind of weird when you see these things in there, you're like, huh, I could totally see that. Yeah, so you never know. The aliens come down here in their intergalactic RV, and then it's all how the, the humans <laughs> are worshiping us again. It's time to move on to the next planet. <laughs> yeah, if we could find one. I'm not sure I'm ready for Mars. I want to be able to go outside. Well, theoretically, by the time we're able to live on Mars, uh, we'll have we'll have worked out a way to, to go outside, I imagine. How? Just really? in case, let's take better care of this planet. Yes. Just in yes. case we can't get Yes. <laughs> Very important to take good care of this planet, please. Yeah. Erica Lewis, this has been an absolute privilege and a pleasure. I have so enjoyed mm -hmm. our conversation tonight. Mm -hmm. uh, my last question uh, is always some variation. Uh, if you could go back to the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would have been useful to you, if you could go back and give yourself some advice that might have made a difference for you and might make a difference for everybody watching or listening to us right now, what would you go back and tell yourself? To live in the moment, to not be in such a hurry, 
to get to the next part. And it's really hard to do that when you're young because, you know, when you're in elementary school, you can't wait to get to middle school. When you're in middle school, you can't wait to get to high school. When you're in high school, you can't wait to get to college. And um, I feel like, especially even in the early part of my, my job time, when I got out of college, um, I was always looking for my next opportunity a lot and how I was going to move up instead of, I mean, I, I worked really hard on everything I was working on, but sometimes, you know, you, you, you can stop and enjoy where you are. And um, it goes the same way with writing. Don't be in a hurry to get your first novel to your, for, to the agents, make sure it's ready, make sure you're you think it's ready, make sure it's done, make sure it's, you know, a lot of times, you know, you, you see other people's successes and you're like, why am I not there? Why am I not, you know, uh, getting there as fast? And, um, and the truth of the matter is, is that um, you can take your time a little bit. You don't have to be in a rush, which is never something my younger self would probably want to hear, but it's okay to stay put and learn and, and understand and, 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 you know, really get to a place where you feel like you're ready for whatever's coming next and then move on as opposed to being in a hurry. And maybe that's just our Gen, Gen X generation. We were always in a, in a hurry, but I feel like it's the same thing now with all the influencers, the Insta, you know, that's all great, but you know, it's no reflection on, on you if you're not there yet or you're not doing that particular thing, you know, be you, be live in the moment. That would be my advice to myself. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Uh, well, my website is just ericalewis.com um, and everything is on there, but on Twitter, it's Erica Ely Lewis. It's got my middle name in it, E-L-Y. Lewis and also on Instagram and you can find me on Facebook and I can't remember that I think it's the Erica Lewis <laughs> um, um, and then uh, I do have a TikTok um, also Erica Ely Lewis um, same same place to find me uh, I don't update it as much as I should I try um, but uh, by the end of the day I don't know if I'm always camera ready you don't have to be camera ready on Twitter so sometimes it's easier to find me there <laughs> so. well as always esteemed audience for uh, interviews with all the best literary agents authors editors all the world's best people head to <laughs> littlegreatninja.com download your free copy of Manicure Bones and the Giant Robot Bees and God willing that I'm alive I'll see you next week <laughs>